Welcome to the Recession Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast. Join your host, Sam Newell, as he educates you on how to make profitable, low-risk real estate investments that will cash flow through any economy. Hear interviews with the top real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the country to find out what they've learned and implemented since the 2008 recession. With over 10 years in real estate investing, it has become Sam's goal to help others invest for double-digit returns, but to also stay safe and not get caught in the next downturn. Tune in and become recession-proof. Michael Young, superstar real estate agent. Thanks for being on my podcast, man. Always a pleasure. Awesome. Well, hey, it's a Saturday. I really appreciate you taking the time. Two really exciting topics, and most of my guests can't actually talk about both. So I'm really excited to talk to you about being a superstar, top-producing real estate agent, as well as a successful multifamily real estate investor and owner. So I want to take us back though, a couple years. Where were you in high school, Michael? Tell us about your upbringing, where you grew up, and did you ever consider yourself or would you have ever thought that you'd be a top producing realtor and a multifamily investor? Was that ever in the plans? I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. I grew up in a business-oriented family. So we always talked about business. Money was always uh, normalized. Mm-hmm. It was never a secret. It was never taboo. It was expected for us to, to understand it and talk about it. And uh, that was just the way I was raised. Great. Okay. But I was never, I was never, I was never pushed into it. It was something that I came to on, on my own accord after high school. I didn't see much of a future in music. So I, I approached my father who was, um, at the time, starting to develop mobile home parks, and I asked him if he could, if, if I could just kind of hang around, and it became it became a quick obsession. And it was good because he got very sick with cancer, heart disease, so I had to, to oh, quickly wow. take over from him. So that that was my those were my college years. When my friends were off in college doing their thing, I was learning, you know, a lot of different facets um, about real estate development and business. Wow. So, so you didn't necessarily plan on it in high school. Sounds like you had, you were considering a music career and um, luckily you had this dad who taught you about money, which is awesome. I'm jealous because my parents, uh, there was, there was no good lessons about money for me growing up. And um, so, so you fell into this business or you were able, he was able to bring you in and developing mobile home parks at a, at 18 years old, you said, right? Between 19 and 20, because I, I actually, I was playing music about three or four nights a week. I was enrolled at a junior college in town, but I really wasn't going. I was playing till three, four o'clock in the morning and barely getting up and, and you know, fooling around with girls and music. And, and I would sit through, kind of sleep through psychology classes. And then after about a year, I said to my dad, I said, you know, this is, this is a joke. I, I, I don't know much, but I think I, I really want to... Um, kind of understand, I've watched you all my life. I kind of want to understand, just try to understand what it is that you do because I don't really understand business. I don't understand money. He said, okay. And I basically started from the bottom. I started, um, you know, scrubbing toilets and talking to the the construction guys and and dealing with, you know, just every every facet of business. Mm -hmm. Got it. No, that's perfect. So, I mean... 
sounds like you you skipped out the, on the formal education because you were much more interested on getting a real education in in business and money and and what a a really neat way to do that with with your dad and and working with him so tell me about that first deal or or park that you guys worked on or multiple parks um, what do those look like and and how did those go well I only did one park with him and I did we I was lucky because I got in at halfway through the first phase and then about six months after that he got he had a very serious heart attack so he was out of the box for another six months or a year convalescing at home so here we have a hundred unit mobile home park and between myself and my my at the time 31 year old sister uh or 30 year old i guess she'd be 29 30 we really had to really take over because there was a lot of money at stake there were 100 homes ordered there was a clubhouse that had to be built um you know uh green belts i mean the whole nine yards this is a major development in a place called petaluma california mm-hmm. my dad at home at the age of i don't know how old he was i guess 64 65 years old and uh, you know, type A driver personality in, in, a, in a hospital bed at home. So I decided instead of leaving home, as most young guys would at the age of 19, 20 years old, I decided that I was going to stay at home. And basically, the way I was raised, we, we, we were raised never to look at the clock. You know, we, my dad worked seven days a week, so I worked seven days a week. And, and I, you know, got up at five o'clock in the morning and called the contractors to make sure they showed up. Sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. I have a 12 hour day, and then I come home talk with him, get yelled at for about three or four hours about, you know, how, how stupid I was and making all the mistakes and then get up and do it again the same day. There were no vacations, seven days a week, 12 to 14 hours a day, come home, eat dinner, talk with him. That was my life for about four or five years straight. Wow. Until the development was over. And then, then after we finished phase one, he got back into it. But then he was told he had renal cancer, which means that's the cancer of your kidney. And he was told he had, uh, I think, six to 12 months to live. They got him on a drip and it kept him alive for 11 years. But again, he couldn't really come back the way he needed to. And, and right. um, so it was, a, it was a hell of an education for me. I was, I was wow. extremely, extremely fortunate. You know, the best part was I got, for the first time, I got to actually be with my father because growing up, he was, he was, he was home at five o'clock, but he was a workaholic and worked seven days a week. So he was in the retail furniture business. I never really got to know him that well. There were no camping trips and he always made my ball games and, and always, you know, did that. But, you know, my dad worked seven days a week. And, and, and so I was very fortunate towards the end of his life. I got to work and really take in whatever knowledge he could impart to me. I was very fortunate to, and I was trying to suck up every bit I could. Right. 24 seven because I knew his time was limited and he knew his time was limited. Yeah. He had no formal education, so it was really a race against time. That, that's neat, though. Not many people can say they get to learn and work with their their parents or their you know their their dad or, or any family member. So that's that's a quite the opportunity you had. I was very fortunate. Very neat. So when did you get your broker's license? I got my my real estate license in nineteen oh actually nineteen eighty five. I got my real estate license. Okay. Ninety around nineteen ninety, I got my broker's license. I knew, I knew I was never going to want to ultimately work for anybody else. I knew I had mm-hmm. to get my broker's license to have that. I needed, I, I know I needed to have full autonomy. So you got your real estate license in eighty five, which is when I was born, and then you right. realized you wanted to work for yourself, which 
I fully promote. It's, it's really hard for me to work for other people. I think I've got a good situation now where, where I'm working with a great broker, but if I wasn't with this guy, I'd, I'd follow your footsteps and do the same thing because working for yourself is, is I think um, the best thing you can do if, if you're a driven personality like, like you are and like I am. So yeah, 90, you got your broker's license. Yeah, I don't promote this for the average bear. It's, it's not something the average person should, not average, but I don't think most people should do it because I, I think most people should work for a broker. The reason I did it is because I knew that real estate was only a, a vehicle to acquire assets for, for wealth. That's the only reason why I went and got my real estate license. It wasn't to get wealthy from selling houses. Got it. Awesome. Yeah, you've done very well and you've been able to sell quite a few homes. So if I remember right, you actually got into commercial real estate first, right? When you got your license? Right. So, so after I left the family, um, I, I went to Mark. I couldn't get a job on the street because no one would trust, would, would, I had no experience. I had sold the mobile homes, right? To, to, right. to find park because we, we, by selling the homes that basically financed the, the building of the park, but I had no experience selling, you know, any other kind of real estate. So I couldn't get a job. I, I wanted to, get a job selling commercial real estate in downtown San Francisco. No one would hire me because I was a young guy with no experience. Mm-hmm. The only company that would take a chance on me was Marcus and Millichap. And the only reason why they took a chance on me is because I was dating a girl that her sister was the, was the secretary. She got me a, an interview with, with the broker. Oh, nice. He was an obnoxious young guy in his early thirties, hardcore driving pirate kind of guy. He said, why should I hire you? You know, so, you know, you're, you're just a punk. Why should I hire you? I said, I couldn't think of any reason. I said, well, just give me the phone. He said, what do you mean give me the phone? I said, give me the phone. I was sitting right across from his desk. He said, mm-hmm. what are you going to do? You tell me what to say, and I'll just say the words, and I'll, I'll call I'll call all day long. He nice. said, shut up. Stop, stop kidding around. I said, give me the phone or throw me out of your office, because I'm getting a job no matter what. He, started, he looked at me for about 30 seconds. He laughed and he said, you better not make me regret this because I've never done this before. So take a desk and a bullpen, shut up, keep your nose clean and, and go to work. And that's, that's how I, I was. And I was with Marcus and Millichap for about a year, which was the kind of company I needed to be with because those guys back in, that was 1988, those, 89, those guys were pirates. I mean, it was the wild, it was the wild west. And it was perfect for me. But I also realized I didn't want to be in commercial real estate. I, I wanted to be in residential real estate because I wanted to do volume. I wanted to get paid, you know, all the time. And that's right. just not the way it is in commercial real estate. So that, so in 1990, again, I couldn't get a job on the regular street because I had no residential experience. So then another gal that I knew got me a, an interview and I started with a, a company in 1990. And then about three days later, I met uh, Mike Ferry. Awesome. Great segue. Great segue. So sounds like you basically forced yourself to get a job in commercial. You, you forced the job on them by being willing to uh, cold call, which I built my career the same way, cold calling. But what, what a great attitude. Just tell me what to say and I'll go say it. And tell me, tell me what I need to do to be successful. And I feel like that's a very common theme. You know, I just interviewed our good friend, Ed Kaminsky, a couple days. Very similar thing. You know, j- just I'm going to go and I'm going to make the calls and I'm going to, I'm going to, just grind it out and do what I need to do to, to get paid and, and be successful. And I would say that's why most people do not succeed at real estate and do not succeed at real estate investing is they're willing to put in some effort, but not maximum effort. 
you know, that, and, um, it's, it's just very interesting. So, so you got into residential and, and to be clear, um, I think you would have done great in commercial. You probably would have slayed it, but your goal was really to invest yourself. So you wanted something that was a little bit more volume based, a little bit more consistent paychecks than a couple big deals a year in commercial so that you could focus as well on your own real estate investments. Is that right? That's correct. Awesome. Awesome. So tell me a little bit about Mike Ferry because I, I'm in Mike Ferry coaching. Um, a lot of the, the people that invest with us and the people that are on the show are in Mike, Mike Ferry coaching. Tell me what's the, the thing that's really benefited you the most by, by having a Mike, Mike Ferry as a coach and having a Mike Ferry coach currently. Well, I needed a system. I needed someone to mentor me and guide me and show me the basics of the system. I knew once I, I had the system, then I could run with it. When I first met Mike in 1990, there was no coaching. It was simply, I was very, very, very lucky because back then Mike was in his mid forties, early forties. I was 27, uh -huh. but he was probably in his early forties and he was coming to California, which is where he was based, the Bay Area all the time. So I could see Mike Ferry. Now picture this, Mike Ferry in his early forties. Do you have an afro? major afro, <laughs> I probably saw him 20 to 30 times a year wow. because he would um, do action workshops and I would go to two to three action workshops a year. So I would see him every week for, you know, one, one day a week for over and over again, mm -hmm. plus the retreats. So I really got maximum exposure to him all the time. So I just was like a sieve. I was a young guy mind was completely open and I just took it all in sometimes too literally because it cost me deals sometimes sure but I basically took everything I could from him and just used it and then I became because I was such a pain in the butt I became friends with him because I was constantly asking questions and I guess he kind of liked that and mm -hmm. you know we, we're, we share the same very strange sense of humor <laughs> so there became kind of a, I don't want to say friendship because let's put it this way. He was very kind to me. Okay. He, he didn't have to be. He gave me a lot of time and a lot of his wisdom and a lot of his personal thoughts on things. It wasn't just from the stage. So I was, again, extremely fortunate because I wanted to be mentored by someone much older than me and I was willing to, to learn and be open and never, never argued, never. I just did it to the best of my abilities. And if I had problems, I'd come back to him and he was always extremely generous with his time and his wisdom. I love it, man. I love it. And, and if you look at top producers throughout the world, you know, you look at an Olympian or a LeBron James or a Tiger Woods, you know, they all have coaches and they all have multiple coaches. Yeah. And they always have coaches at, at all times coaching them on how to be better. And I'm like you. I, I wanted someone just to tell me how to do it. I know there's been so many successful people before me. And it, it's funny, when I, when I went to my second brokerage, so I sold one house in my first six months in real estate and realized I was at the wrong brokerage. I went to my the interview at the next one and I said, you know, I just want a script. Um, I know there's a way to say things to people that's better than what I'm saying. I want a system. I want um, instructions on how to be a successful, good uh, realtor. And my broker smiles and slaps down the Mike Ferry 90-day production plan and sold 17 homes in my next six months. 
So, yeah, for, for our listeners that don't understand or know who Mike Ferry is, he, I've been to all the coaches, all the real estate coaches. I've listened to all of them. I've only ever been coached by Mike or Mike Ferry coaches because he teaches you how to become a truly professional salesperson. Right. And there's only one thing that's important in real estate, and that's generating business. And you generate business by taking care of your clients and calling them every single day or finding new clients every single day. There's really only, only those two aspects. And that's what Mike focuses on. He doesn't focus on dropping pies off to 200 people a month. He doesn't focus on social media as much. He focuses on meeting with the people and grinding it out every single day like a professional salesperson would or should. And that's what I enjoy about him. And, you know, I don't, I don't get anything for talking about him on my podcast, but I will always promote him over any other real estate trainer because he is, again, teaches you how to become a true professional salesperson and generate business every single day. So fast forward, I mean, that was 1990. We're in 2020. So you, you've been in coaching for, for 30 years or been a part of the Mike Ferry system for 30 years. He's mentored me for 30 years. Wow, that's fantastic. So for a new broker or a new realtor or even someone struggling, um, what would you say are the, the top two or three things that have allowed you to become this top producer that someone else can also repeat? Because you know, there, there's so many brokers or realtors out there that are struggling and they don't understand what it, what it takes to be successful. And um, I think there's some very simple things that people can do. Learn the scripts, make them a part of you, have a very strong, accountable, and that's the key word, schedule. Mm -hmm. Learn the objection handlers and the listing presentation. And have very simple, strong, held accountable goals. I love it. You do those four things, and of course, prospecting. If you're a brand new agent or an agent struggling, you should be prospecting four to six hours a day because you have nothing else to do. <laughs> nothing. And prospecting means cold calling or knocking doors, talking to anybody and everybody about needing to sell a house or buy a house. It's you very should, simple. You just have to find have, people. Yeah, if you're a new agent or struggling, you should be asking, asking 30 to 50 people a day, when would you like to move? Absolutely. That will solve any production, any monetary problems you might have if you choose to do it. Right. Most people won't do that. It's hard. No. It's, it's, it's boring or it can be a little bit scary or intimidating. But once you're a true professional salesperson, once you learn the scripts like you're talking about, it's not that hard. It's just... Very straightforward. Yeah. You just got to do it. You just got to do it. Right. It's, not, it's not fun, but it's part of the right. business. It's not meant for everybody. Right. In fact, 95% of the agents in the, in, the, in the country should not, they should probably be getting a regular job if they can find their own business. Yeah, I agree. And, and what, what's interesting about your comment on goals is have very strong goals. I started going to the Mike Ferry Superstar Retreat in, I think it was 2011. In 2013, I started writing at the top of my notebook. And you know how it is. You get these notebooks where you, you take notes, you know, for three or four days listening to Mike Ferry talk. And at the top of every single page, starting in 2013, I wrote sell 100 homes by 2018. 
or be selling 100 homes a year by 2018 or sell 100 homes in 2018. And I wrote it every, you know, I went to three or four events a year. I went to the Miami retreat, the Las Vegas retreat, and, and the January San Diego retreat. And in 2018, thanks to Mike Ferry coaching and, and everything, I sold 106 properties. So it's interesting. That was my five-year goal. Yeah. I, did, I wrote it and wrote it and wrote it and wrote it and worked on it, and it happened. I mean, it's not rocket science. You just you have to do it. You have to believe it. You have to have accountability, and, and you have to have the drive that you have, obviously, to do these things. And, uh, again, it's not for everybody. It's only for about 5% of all the agents will actually do what you said. Yeah. So tell me about your goals. I mean, I, I know as far as a realtor, you're, you're selling a hundred homes a year or so, and you have been for years, which I think is awesome. I mean, that's, that's hard to do consistently. You have a great business. You do a lot of probate. I'm in the Bay area, but I really like your multifamily goal. So tell me about your investing goal and what your vision is for that business and, and the future of that business. My investing goal is to have 3000 multi-residential units by 2028 and to have a, a passive income monthly of $2 million a month. I love it. I love it. And, and when you and I spoke, I think it was in Denver, you went into a little bit more detail and you said, you know, if you provide a really nice place for people to live, there is an, a, an amazing ability to have a win-win scenario in multifamily because you get to your goals faster by producing a huge income for, for you and your family. And there are so many slumlords out there that you can provide a very nice place, a safe place, a decent place for these renters to live. And it is absolutely what this country needs. They, they need good landlords and these people can be very grateful and, and in a much better situation because of you being a good landlord. Tell me about your park. So when people think about a trailer park or a mobile home park, you know, usually they think, oh, you know, it's crime. They think, you know, think about the, the listing you and I have together, the, the Stockton mobile home park. They, they don't think of a nice place to live, but correct me if I'm mistaken, you have a really nice place and um, you've taken good care of it. Well, I have four parks and all of them are lower to middle income properties. The average income is probably anywhere from 30 to $75,000. And I think the one thing that, as an investor, the pandemic has, has proven more than any other time is that there's no safer place for real estate, for a real estate investor to be in some form of multi-residential real estate, whether it's mobile home parks or apartments. Mm -hmm. um, I have some, some very, very close to your friends that are very, very, very wealthy. And they have hundreds of millions of dollars worth of retail, very nice retail, very nice office. And they're suffering right now. Yeah. Now, will they continue to? No, I think they'll always do well, but I wouldn't trade places with them. No. In a heartbeat because you don't need an office. And especially this pandemic now is proving that you don't need an office like you thought you might have, at least to the, to the extent you might thought you might have. Unless you have specific kind of retail, 40% of the retail in this country is going to go bye-bye, gone, probably to be re-pivoted um, to some sort of residential combination or industrial yep. because 
simply just not needed. It's way overbuilt. And so, you know, my vacancy has not dropped one iota wow. at all. I thank God for that. I'm very, very fortunate that way. Could it next month? I guess. But as we open back up again, it's only going to stay strong. So I'm extremely bullish on, on multi-residential in, in any good part of, of North America and Canada. And I always will be because, again, you need taxes. You need taxes. You need um, food, shelter, and clothing. Right. Well, and, and the government, the first thing they did with, when coronavirus hit, they started sending people checks in the mail. They said, hey, we're going to do mortgage forgiveness, and we're going to send everyone checks so they can pay the rent. That's right. And by the way, that, that only helped me because those people that would have been out of work, they're actually making, this is sad to say, and I, I don't, I'm not endorsing this whatsoever, but it is reality. I'd say probably 30% of my tenants are making more money staying at home, paying me rent. Yeah. And if it, back to the regular job. That's, that's a sad thing to say, but it is true. Right. And my point about your four parks is, is that they're not slums. The reason that you have this amazing occupancy right now during coronavirus is the same reason our apartments are doing so amazing as well. They're a nice place to live. They attract quality people and you provide a great service for these people. You provide a great place for them to live. And you don't have to go chase people down and deal with these mass amounts of, of non-payments or a vacancy that all these other slum lords or these people are, are, are dealing with. So what is your view on, on multifamily as far as a tax vehicle, an investment vehicle? Any thoughts there as far as other realtors, should they invest in real estate? What do you think about that? Well, let me be clear. The, the four properties I have, those particular properties, they're, they're also apartments as well, not just mobile home parks. Okay. Um, so I just want to be clear on that. As far as investing in, in real estate as a vehicle, there, there's, there's, there's four things that real estate provides that you can't get in the stock market or Bitcoin or Ethereum. Or I was just having this conversation with, with <laughs> some people on my mastermind group uh, before the call. Number one, you're going to get cash flow. That is the most important thing. Cash flow is king. Yep. You're going to get tax benefits that you cannot get from any other vehicle. You're going to get leverage that you cannot get from any other vehicle. And lastly, you're going to get this secret word that most people just never think about, depreciation. Mm -hmm. And the bigger you go, the more depreciation you get. Now, for our, our, our friends out there that are earning a lot of, earned income from selling a lot of houses, mm -hmm. you're getting majorly, majorly wrecked every year by the state federal government, depending on where you live, especially. Right. You've got to have real estate holdings because they're going to give you cash flow, tax advantages, leverage, and most importantly for those people that are getting killed in taxes, depreciation. Right. You've got to have, you've got to understand Depreciation, that is what every, every major real estate guy, gal understands. They're not just in it for the tax flow. They're not just in it for the leverage. They're not just in it for the, for the, uh, the cash flow and, and tax, tax reasons. They're in it for the depreciation. Right. Let's take that a step further because this is a really, really important item. I don't think most people understand. And yes, you can depreciate a duplex or a fourplex. You can depreciate a condo or a townhome. No, no compare. 
we shouldn't even go down that road because if that's what if that's what someone is thinking that they're and they really don't understand. Yep. That, not, that's why I want to make the, the distinction. Yeah. So what is a cost segregation? Because here's my point. You can depreciate those smaller investments. And a lot of people like to say small, they feel like it's a little bit more secure. There's multiple reasons to go into big multifamily. It's much more secure. It's lower risk. You get non-recourse financing. But if you're a high income earner, you want to buy a value add multifamily asset because of cost segregation and the money you can write off from doing the value add. So Michael, what is a cost seg and why is that so much more advantageous with large multifamily than a duplex or a fourplex? I'm not smart enough to give you the, the textbook definition of cost or a cost segregation report, but in fact, you could probably do a much better job explaining it. But to my little brain, a cost segregation report is a legal report that you can pay for. It's going to cost you a few thousand dollars mm-hmm. and it's going to be done. It's an appraisal that's going to be done by a certified IRS appraiser that will look at your asset your real estate multi-res assets or commercial asset, and they're going to segregate and look at the different ways that your property can be written off in a very, very short time, one to two to three year punch. So instead of depreciating something over 10, 20, 30 years, they're going to take that and they're going to get it down to maybe one or two years. So instead of you taking 500,000, a million, $2 million dollars, uh, as a tax break for all the depreciation on that building, the things that are going to fall apart that you can legally write off, it's going to be done and you can take it in that, in that for, I'll give you an example. So a couple of years ago, I bought a mobile home park for I think $4 million. Mm-hmm. We immediately did a cost segregation on it. And my partner and I bought it uh, with my partner. We were able to take and write off in a one year time, uh, $1,800,000 worth of, depreciation. So each of us took off $900,000 against our earned income. That's amazing. So that's just a basic example, but well, I'm just trying to give a real life example of what's possible. Yeah. And that was, that was just a 60 unit, uh, 60 unit property. Yeah. That's amazing. But, yeah. And here's the big difference. Here, here's the big difference between big multifamily and, and duplexes and fourplexes. If you're going to put your money into something, leverage up as long as it's still a good deal and a safe deal leverage up you will get a way bigger way bigger like you're saying nine hundred thousand dollars off your income a way bigger tax write-off and it doesn't make sense to pay for a cost segregation study typically on those smaller homes duplexes and fourplexes you're not going to save that much money it typically just doesn't make sense so you and i are looking at a hundred hundred and forty unit portfolio deal in Cincinnati and the, the cost seg would save us probably about 2 million bucks the first year. That's right. Plus our investors that are putting money in that deal, they, they all get their own portion of that. And in addition to that, when you buy a value add deal, the government says any money you put into that property also is a tax write off. So cost seg is amazing because your dishwashers are going to go out in a few years, your water heaters, your furnaces, they're all going to go out in three to four years, not 27 years like the IRS traditionally has said, that's how long you can depreciate the entire asset. 
So cost segregation allows you to account for those items that you're going to have to replace in the next three to four years. Let me make it as simple as possible. You ready? Yeah. For, for the people listening, the smaller the deal, the more you're going to get punished by the federal government. The larger the deal, the more you're going to get rewarded by the federal government. Yep. It's, it's no more complicated than that. Exactly. For those buying single family homes, duplexes, triplexes, eightplexes, whatever, you are going to, in the federal government's mind, you're, we're, they're going to punish you because you're not providing enough housing, enough tax base. So yes, you'll get certain tax benefits. Yes, you're going to cash flow, but they are not going to give you the full uh, opportunity that you would have if you were to buy instead of eight units, 80 units. Right. It's, it's no more complicated than that. Right. And that's why they allow non-recourse financing. The, the federal government does not want to have to provide housing. They can't. They know that we can do it better. Correct. That's why they allow non-recourse loans for backed by Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. That's why the Warren Buffetts and the Donald Trumps and the Jared Kushners and the Sam, and the Sam Zells, the people like that, that's why they don't pay taxes because, and legally, by the way, right. even though in 10, 20, 30 million dollars a month in income, they have 10, 20, 30 million dollars a month in depreciation to negate that. So they don't pay any taxes. Yeah. And the government loves it because the it would cost them way more to provide that housing. Right. So people have to understand that. Look, if you're going to think, think like the big guys and gals, don't think like your, your neighbor, Bob, who owns a couple of duplexes. I mean, you can, but you're going to get punished. You're going to get dinged. Well, and, and, you know, from the risk standpoint, that's why I got out of selling duplexes and fourplexes. My career was started in residential. I hit it big selling duplexes and fourplexes. And I've sold, you know, a few hundred duplexes and fourplexes in the last four or five years. And when I saw the writing on the wall, I said, you know, the market's getting too hot. It's scaring me how much people are paying for these fourplexes and duplexes. And when I really looked at the numbers and compared to my multifamily opportunities that I had that I was closing on with these other partners and, and getting ready to buy, I, I said, you know, if I'm an investor and I have a hundred or 200,000 to invest, I am so much safer, not to mention the higher returns, not to mention the much better tax write-offs. I'm so much safer in large multifamily. My risk is mitigated by having multiple units so yeah, it's very interesting we're having this conversation because I wanted to talk to you about your real estate business, but I mean, you and I can just talk about multifamily all day long. It's so much safer. And right now during coronavirus, I'm 100% rent, uh, rent collected in all my assets in Utah. And the, money, the deal I'm in in Dallas, we are over 90% collected for, for May and April. We're doing fine. We could have dropped to 20% vacancy or jumped to 20% vacancy, and we still would have been fine. Let's put it this way. If you're not convinced what asset class to be <laughs> after this pandemic. We can't help you. I don't, know, I don't know what else to tell you. Yeah. This is, if an act of God doesn't convince you, then it doesn't matter what, what I say. Yep. You know, I'm worried, Michael. I'm, I'm actually pretty worried about this pandemic. I think the worst thing for you and I from coronavirus is going to be the surge of buyers in the multifamily space. I think commercial investors, retail investors, 
syndicators and developers are going to look at the numbers and they're going to say, Sam and Michael and, and Robert and Rod and, and all those deals that these guys had, they were still over 90% occupied through the craziest pandemic shutdown we've, the world has ever seen. And everyone else is losing their shorts. So I, I, I'm actually worried for you and I. I think we're going to have a lot more competition in the following years because of how well multifamily is performing right now. Interesting you say that. I argue with my, my two closest friends who are much wealthier than I, much smarter than I. And still, they're holding on to their, their commercial properties. They're not, you'd think, and again, they're much smarter than me, you would think that they'd be getting out of retail and office. They're not. They're just finding yeah. ways around it because I think what might happen, and I could be very wrong, they're just going to reposition because they have no choice and they're so vested. Sure. They're going to reposition some of their retail and or office. And it might, it might end up that some of this office, because of the coronavirus, you think that it would kill it. It might be that it causes people in some cases to make more space because now if you're Twitter or these guys, and all of a sudden you had, you know, hundred people in a small space. Now you might need more space because of social distancing. Yeah. So it'll be being in the office space, not the retail space, but the office space. Yes. Some people will say, Hey, those 30% that stayed home, I'll keep you home. But the rest that are staying, we're going to either keep that space or even take maybe more space because now I can't get Bob, Mary, and Tina to work close anymore because they're afraid they're going to catch a whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So it'll be really, so to answer your question, I don't know if it will or won't. I just know that there's always going to be good deals. There's always going to be opportunity. And as long as you're in the game, you'll score, but you have to be in the game and not be sitting out. You can't be waiting you just can't be. You have to be in the game 24-7. Yeah. Very, you have to be very proactive. Absolutely. Well, and, and you know, I'm, I'm looking at deals every day and analyzing deals. And what's really fun about this pandemic is it makes you and I look extremely wise. It makes us look wise. I almost said smart, but that's probably not the best word, wise. Because we stress test every deal. And every deal you and I look at, Michael, it's very simple. If it can't break even with a 25% economic vacancy or with the total income dropping by 25%, we don't do it. We don't even consider writing an offer or we write an offer where that would be the case. And so far there's people that haven't done that and they're, they're in trouble. They're in big trouble right now. And all the assets I own and, and you own, we're doing fantastic. We're, we're actually sleeping really well at night during the worst recession or pandemic since 2008 and, and could be one of the worst ones in the country's history as far as people losing money. So I don't know. Tell me about um, what you think about stress testing and why you feel so confident. If something passes a stress test, why you feel confident moving forward that it's not high risk? Very simple because we're looking at, we look at, we don't do 35 or 40% expenses. We look at 45 to 50% expenses. And we know once we go in, we'll probably get that down to 40 or 45 because we're operators. We know how to operate a property properly. But we're, we're looking, I first look at, and you do too, worst case scenario, you know, 20, 30% vacancies, God forbid. Except now we've seen God forbid, and God forbid <laughs> is more like, five to 10% and you and I aren't even seeing that in our stuff. Yeah. So if we're doing God forbid at 30% and we're, we're 
were looking at expenses of 50%, then we would have to go into a full-blown worse than 1929 depression yeah. or something to really affect what we're buying. Now, well, let's be clear. We, we looked at the numbers from 2008. This is the beautiful thing we have of living through 2008 and learning from other, others' mistakes. We saw that the worst average economic vacancy or the total drop in income in these multifamily deals was up to 15% on average. Depending on where you're looking in the country, we're, we're looking in places that, that have high barriers of entry, extreme uh, uh, not immigration, but, um, you know, where jobs are coming. Um, yeah. Yeah. Jobs coming in, my, people my, coming in. My, my, migration. Yeah. And, um, you know, very, very, very safe places to invest. And uh, we're not looking in, in, in fringe places. We're not, we're not looking in, in ghetto places. And so, right, we now have lived through a pandemic and 2008. And now even more so, we know what we do want. And not only that, one thing we haven't talked about, is that we don't believe in high leverage. We're looking at when we put down on properties, we're putting down anywhere between 30 and 40%. Yep. So as not to lever properties too high. Yeah. Which is all that's, I watched, you know, half of my genius, you know, uh, guys before in 2008, 2011 go bankrupt because they were putting down 5%, 10%, 20%. You could get away with it back then. I never did that. I've yeah. never had, never been high leverage. And I, so you didn't get greedy with everyone else. Never. Here's the only thing. Instead of having, you know, 300 plus units that I have now, maybe I'd have a thousand, but maybe I would have lost 500 if I had done with those other yeah. guys or maybe lost everything. Right. So, you know, I stayed somewhat small, but I, it's, it's paid off. Well, and you're in a really, really good position now. And, and that's one thing I want to talk to people about You can become recession proof. It's not hard. You just have to do what Michael Young has done and you buy right. You don't get greedy. You buy right and you leverage in the right way. And, you know, any deal that we're going to do in the next forever will always have six months of working capital from the day we buy it. So that's set aside at a, in a bank account. If we stop getting rent, we're going to be able to pay our expenses for six months. And so when you do like that, when you buy right, you can sleep at night and yeah, maybe you're at 300 units. There's some people that maybe have a few more units than you, but you can oh, sleep not, at night. 300 is nothing, but, but um, that's why I keep playing the game. But you're in a really, really good position. And so when people say, Hey, I don't want to get into real estate investing because it's high risk. It doesn't have to be, you can still get very wealthy and do very, very well for yourself buying a few units, you know, maybe not 3000, maybe 300, 400 a year and buying right. And, and that's how you become recession proof. You get these, these large facilities, you run them right, you buy them right. And there's little risk. There's, there's very little risk. I mean, we've had tornadoes. We had a tornado at one of our properties with my other partners, Robert and Rod. And, and we had our roofs blow off the, the Dallas property that I invested in last year. And guess what? We got through it. No problem. We put people in hotels, we got insurance money and we had our six months working capital and we were just fine. So what do you think the biggest mistake investors or realtors made during the 2008 recession? Just looking back from your perspective. Greed, number one. And number two, a low financial IQ. Yeah. I really like what you just said, greed. It's frustrating for me when we find these deals, Michael. And 
I'll take them to an investor, someone who's done deals with us in the past or has invested with us or maybe not. But they want a home run. They want a grand slam. They want to double their money. They want to triple their money. And they're not happy with an 8 to 10% cash on cash return. They're not happy with the 15% yearly return on investment, which are amazing numbers which are amazing numbers. And I feel like that's why I got out of selling duplexes and fourplexes as much because people were getting greedy. And it's interesting how greedy people get. They ignore an amazing deal because they want a home run. So it's, it's very interesting and unfortunate. And I think, um, you know, if I were an investor today, I would be looking for a safe, a very profitable but also a very safe deal, something where I'm, I don't need to hit a home run. So you said, don't be greedy. And they have a lack of a financial IQ, right? Their financial IQ. And, and so that's why we're doing the podcast. We want to teach people how to be recession proof. As far as a realtor goes, how do you become recession proof? Uh, you mean as far as your brokerage or investing? Just, just your own business. Your own business producing every day. Michael Young, top producer. How do you keep producing during a, a recession? Very simple. You, you get up, you do your prospecting, you set appointments, you close deals, you stay on schedule, you have high, high, high accountability. You have three, four, five accountability partners. You send them checks. It's got to hurt if you don't do what you say you're going to do. And then you pay your taxes, you pay your personal expenses, and you store the money to the side in the bank short term until you find a deal, and then you put it all into a deal, and then you just keep doing that over and over and over and over again. This is a very, very, very simple formula. Very simple. All you have to do is produce money, operate at a high level, and, and, and invest. And I love it. That's, so that's what I've done since, since day one. I actually got into real estate as an investor to, to flip homes but I've always tried to invest 30% of my income. Do you have a, a percentage that you try to invest or you just live as, as uh, meager as you can and invest as much as you can? What do you do? That's it. Don't live above your means. Enjoy your life. Um, I'm at a point in my life at, at 57 that I'm able to do some, I, I'm able to, to do some luxuries I didn't do. How old are you? 34. So when I was 34, Although it doesn't really matter what your age was, it really makes a difference. What you, it's all about your net worth. Mm-hmm. This is one man's opinion. Most people are not going to agree with this. Unless you have a net worth of between minimum 10 to $20 million, you should not be buying a single family home. Yeah. You should be renting and putting everything into your buying assets. When you get to the $20 million range net worth, then you can do some fun, stupid things like buying homes and Ferraris and you know, whatever Hellcat, else. Purple Hellcats. Purple hell, whatever you want to do. <laughs> right. Well, it's interesting you say that because I, I just bought my first home. Um, now, it's not my first home. It's my first home for us. After 10 years of marriage, we've been f- living in our flips for, for 10 years. I am in agreement with you. Until you get to a certain net worth, you should not be spending money on a nice house. Now, the house I'm in now was 100% of the down payment was paid for by those flips. I put none of my earned income into it. And it's cheaper now where I'm in in Utah, actually cheaper to buy a nice place, a decent, it's not a luxury home, 
to buy a decent place than to rent. I looked at the numbers. I took a couple of my investments, threw them into a new house. My wife's happy because we don't have to live in our flips anymore, but we did it for 10 years. Right. And you have to make a sacrifice. So we're in agreement there. We're in agreement. So um, invest your money. Don't spend your money on nice cars and extravagant homes until you, you have, uh, you've built your portfolio. I love it, man. I really appreciate you being on the show. Um, one thing I'm really impressed with is, is the network you've built with other realtors doing, you and I have a listing together right now and, and I'll try not to laugh <laughs> about it. It's been a crazy deal. Not, not your or my fault, but our sellers a little bit, a little bit out there but you've built an amazing network doing probate and that's one niche in the market you've done really well with. So is there anything, any beneficial to these other agents reaching out to you or any way that we can help promote you or your business on this show? I appreciate that. I'm in the San Francisco Bay area and um, any, any, I, I don't, um, probably not, I'm probably not the right guy to refer buyers to. I'm primarily a listing agent. If you do refer me a buyer, I'll, I'll, Give them to my one of my uh, staff that have most likely that have uh, their real estate license. Then I'll just take a piece of that. I don't I don't drive people around in cars and show properties. So refer me refer me sellers. I'd love to help them anywhere in the Bay Area. Awesome, awesome. And when you get probates, you refer those out as well. And and at and at the same time, we're we're looking for multifamily acquisitions. So if people have deals. Right. If they have a mobile home park, um, we can sell it, but we're also buyers. You know, we're looking to buy a hundred, you know, 50 plus unit properties all over the country. I think the only place we won't buy is California, Chicago, and New York and Washington, Oregon, and everywhere else we're, we're looking for deals. So I think that's great. Um, if they want to reach out to you, I mean, I don't know. Do you, do you have any other avenues or, or things that you do? Do you have a mastermind that you're currently working on or anything? A very, very strong mastermind I've been a part of for, for over 10 years. And I would say to people listening that uh, I am a buyer 24-7. So if you have a deal in your, in your city, town, state, whatever it is, even in a crazy state like California, New York, or what, what I would do is I would take that deal and flip it into a state that is is – Real estate friendly. So if you build something in your in your in your state that I don't want to invest in, like California, New York, New Jersey, Illinois, but I can flip it into a Salt Lake City or Cincinnati or Oklahoma City or Texas or wherever, then absolutely I'm a buyer 24-7. But yes, if you have a 50, 75, 100 unit deal that, that you stumble upon, I'd love to partner with you 24-7. Awesome. Awesome. All right, man, we're, we're out of time. I really appreciate you being on. Um, I, I love the systems you've built. I love that you're a top producing realtor and uh, a serious, credible, really good real estate investor. I know you provide a lot of value to your friends and you're always pushing them to invest as well, which um, keep doing it, man. These people need to invest. So thank you for being on the show. Awesome.